0: You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. All right, listeners. Uh, last week we spoke to the former UN Special Rapporteur for the Right to Housing, Professor Raquel Rolnick another person who's been at the coalface for a long time talking about housing affordability pressures and the enclosure of the land has been Dave Wetzel, the... Chair and President of the Labor Land Campaign in the UK since 1983. He's been the immediate past President of the International Union for Land Value Tax. You've heard Dave on the show before. Uh, Welcome back, Dave, and uh, let's delve back in time. Uh, Just the other week, we celebrated the 800th anniversary of the Charter of the Forest. What sort of English uh, picture does that paint in your mind?
1: Well, we keep having rammed down our throats and certainly uh, two years ago when it was the anniversary of the Magna Carta, the big charter, how liberating it was for uh, British people and led towards democracy and all the rest of it. Uh, And of course, this is a huge con. Yes, we did get habeas corpus. If you're put in prison, you have the right to get your body out again without. if they're holding you without just cause. And uh, yes, we did get um, judgment by our peers. But of course, in that sense, it probably meant peers as in sitting in the House of Lords uh, and those peers were judging other barons and wealthy people. It wasn't meant for the ordinary common folk. But um, the worst thing of all was uh, the barons had King John on the run. He was not able to collect his taxes. He was wanting to uh, raise money for wars and his own engrandisement. And um, so he was pleading with them. Please pass me on some of the money that you're collecting. And... uh, they took him on a rowing boat to, uh, literally, uh, to Runnymede. And uh, in Runnymede, they um, got him to agree that they could hold their land. You see, the story I was told at school, and the myth in this country is, that William the Conqueror came across in bad weather, fought the Battle of Hastings, nearly lost it, Uh, But eventually, with a bit of luck, won it and um, gave the land of England to his barons and knights who had helped him win the Battle of Hastings. Uh, And that is not true. He rented the land to his knights and his barons. He was much more canny than our rulers today. And um, he, he even went out to create a doomsday book. He wanted to know how much wealth there was in this country he'd conquered. And within six months, with no computers, no typewriters, no calculators, just a quill pen and a bit of paper, his assessors went out and in six months valued every shire uh, and every hamlet in the whole of England. And uh, he was then able to charge rent to his barons and his knights for the land that they held. And, of course, nobody likes paying rent. You know, I used to be a a rentier of a flat, uh, and it was good value and uh, it wasn't bad, but I didn't exactly like paying it. Well, these barons were in the same position, and when they got the chance to actually stop making these payments, it wouldn't be the same people, of course. We're talking about uh, a few hundred years later, their descendants... Um, they uh, got uh, King John by the short and curlies and said uh, we're going to squeeze harder if you don't alleviate us of these payments uh, and so that's what he did and um, we're supposed to celebrate that as our freedom in fact instead of being able to tax them through collecting their land rent he had to start taxing the merchants in the towns and as we know that taxing system has grown and grown and grown so that not every, not only every merchant in the towns has to pay taxes uh, to the state, but in the UK, every individual that earns more than 11.5 grand a year has to pay taxes to the state and every individual that goes out, even kids, we tax kids in this country, they go out and they buy some sweets in a shop, they have to pay VAT on those sweets. So, you know, we, we've changed from taxing the very richest to taxing the poorest. And two years later, two years later, the charter of the forest was drawn up and signed also by the king. And what had been happening, there was outrage amongst ordinary folk Because, again, these rich barons and other rich landowners were actually putting fences around the forest and saying that if you climb over that fence to do what you, your forefathers, have done for centuries, and that is to uh, catch the wildlife, to uh, pick up the um, nuts uh, to take home to eat, to allow your pigs to roam and to uh, eat the truffles or whatever happens to be in the forest, to collect firewood to take it home, to uh, heat your home, to collect good timber to bring it home, to build your home with wood, you're no longer allowed to do any of those things. We'll appoint a gamekeeper to either shoot you or, or to take you to the local assizes Will you'll be imprisoned or penalised in some way uh, for stealing. I have personal experience of this. Before I was born, my grandfather, my grandfather worked in a bakery, and he was actually <clears throat> taken to court for stealing two loaves of bread on, on, on a Sunday. Uh, and that was because he was allowed to have one loaf of bread. Uh, but because his family was growing came to the weekend, he took three loaves. He was allowed one, but the other two were theft. And he was actually charged five shillings and sixpence uh, for stealing two loaves of bread. And I'm quite proud of that. I think that lives in the good tradition of the people that went out and trespassed. If you're hungry, they should not deny you access to food.
0: He was lucky he didn't uh, get sent out to Australia, (laughs) hey?
1: Oh, well, had it been a few... Decades earlier, that could have well been the place. So, and he could have, his descendants could have been friends of yours today.
0: <laughs> Dave, I'm assuming so...
1: that's how your ancestors got there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know what oh, a cook yeah, you yeah. are,
1: so it obviously runs in the family.
0: Oh, no, we won't get onto that one, but... Uh... Yeah, this period, though, there was a lot of uh, tussling between the monarchs and the landlords and then the communities living on the land wishing to grow their food and, and use some land. But as as uh, the societies developed, there, there was uh, a lot of conflict because the monarch was trying to charge his share of rent on the landlords. They were fighting back with this uh, Magna Carta-type decree and it seemed like uh, society was still trying to figure out how best to to orchestrate these various hierarchies. The, the Charter well, of the Forest was, was part of that comeback, wasn't kickback. it? It was trying to be a bit yeah, more absolutely. reasonable.
1: Yeah, it allowed people to do all the things I've mentioned and others as well, uh, to cut turf in the forest and uh, put on their roofs of their homes. So we celebrate charter of the forest because it is worth a lot and we should get back to those principles today that what nature provides no individual should be able to stop you from enjoying that and the obvious way in a complex economic society like we live in is that uh, we collect the rent of land and natural resources they should go to the government and then we get rid of all these taxes and impediments on, on trade and production.
0: Mm. I mean, it's hard for people these days to really make the connection between the land and the commons and our freedom, but back in those days, if you did engage in poaching and you were caught, you would literally lose an eye.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, the you could be branded so that on your forehead, so that everybody knew what sort of bad character you are. And people were starving because land was being enclosed that had previously been common land that everybody could share. And we were in a situation where people were destitute. And, of course, as a result of that, they did um, rebel and they were many rebellions um some recorded um quite widely some you've got to go into local records to find and uh a friend of mine some years ago wrote a piece for the labor land campaigns newsletter uh, about uh Austerlis and austerly park he was a green campaigner on uh preserving austerly park and uh owned by the Earl of Jersey before he got rid of the expense of running the park. He kept all the agricultural land around it, but the house and the park he transferred to the National Trust. Uh, and so it's now a, a, a National Trust. And I'm very proud of the National Trust. It's a form of land common ownership. But um, landlords, you know, the big rich people of have uh, They need a new roof on the mansion they live in. They give it to the National Trust. The National Trust puts the roof on the house and they're allowed to live there rent-free forever and a day and their ancestors, or their, no, not ancestors, they're all dead. Um, The people that uh, come after them, their grandchildren and great-grandchildren will also be allowed to live in the house. I think that needs to be rectified. But anyway, he wrote this uh, very interesting Article about Queen Elizabeth enclosing the uh, Osterley Park and other areas around it and uh, local people protesting. Uh, and uh, two or three of them, maybe, uh, were actually strung up. Uh, and we often talk about enclosures and we think of... Um, Henry VIII stealing the land from the church privatizing it to his own benefit um but uh, and we think often of enclosures being maybe uh 1700s uh, certainly uh, the 1800s uh but we don't realize that um, it started much much earlier than that and people really did suffer uh, and one of the reasons that it was all legal or mostly I'm told Leicestershire never bothered to go to uh, the House of Parliament to legalise their enclosures. Uh, And so anybody who's got a freehold in Leicestershire today is probably on very tentative hooks because uh, it was never legalised, the original enclosures. But um, the uh, Parliament, the House of Lords, was obviously a House of Landlords. But so was the House of Commons. You had to be a landowner or a leaser over something like £10 a year, which was a lot of money in those days, um, to even vote for the House of Commons. Uh, And you had to be a landowner to sit in the House of Commons. And one of my complaints today is, our British Parliament, I think, we've got two houses. One is called the House of Lords, and the other is called the House of Commons. I bet you there's not more than a handful of the 650 MPs in the House of Commons who doesn't actually own a freehold. I know one of them. It's the young lady from Scotland who got elected for the SNP in 2015. And looking at her register of interest, she has no land ownership in her. Well, nothing worse more. Than a hundred thousand. You don't register anything less than a hundred thousand pounds. Mm. But um, she certainly, I would assume, is not a landowner. I think she lives with her mum and dad. But the uh, vast majority of the members of the House of Commons are landowners. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a, a bad thing. I myself am a landowner. I've got a freehold home. But I think we need a third parliamentary house, and that should be the House of the Landless. People who only pay rent, who have no freehold whatsoever, those people should be represented in Parliament. Mm. And uh, they're not represented in our British Parliament today. So we need three houses.
0: More, more MPs. Wow, Dave Wetzel, that's a jaw dropper there. I believe we need less. Um, listeners, we're talking with uh, Dave Wetzel. He's the chair and president of the Labor Land Campaign. Uh, quite an upswell of discussion of uh, land value tax type issues in the UK uh, particularly in London where as a gateway city so much foreign investment has come flooding into uh, that uh, one one square mile of uh, London CBD and surrounding suburbs and uh, it's uh, just immense Talking to someone like yourself who's been at this uh, story, you know, keeping this story uh, running for, you know, 40, 50 years on uh, to now have this globalized finances, international land shark elites scouring the world looking for um, easy purchases where they can make these huge windfall gains. Did you think that, uh, you know, a decade on from uh, North Rock and the beginnings of the global financial crisis, that would be so soon back in another bubble?
1: Well, yes, of course. Fred Harrison is the person I quote because he looked at the research done in the 1930s in Chicago that went back to the start of the Industrial Revolution. Um, And, of course, reading Progress and Poverty and Henry George uh, Progress and poverty, you know the uh, subheading of that is uh, you know, the causes of uh, uh, booms and slums, you know uh, why do we have these depressions on a periodic basis and uh, using that material, um, Fred Harrison, in nineteen eighty three published Power in the Land uh, that showed there's a clear eighteen year land cycle uh, with a nine year half cycle. And, uh, so anyone who, uh, in 2010, um, thought that, uh, land prices would never go up again, uh, was, um, misled. They needed to read, um, Fred Harrison's book. He followed it up in about 2005 with boom and bust. And, um, it's easy to predict 2010, uh, nine years on from that. I'm expecting maybe it'll be a bit earlier. Uh, next year or 2019, uh, we'll see a mini depression on the current values. Uh, and then 18 years from 2010. So I'm saying 2028, but it could be uh, a year or two earlier. Um, you'll see another big bust. And it's all linked up with psychology and uh, people forgetting, you know, short memories, new people in 18 years. uh, A lot of people will be working in high finance who who were still at school during the uh, 2008-2010 crash. And so, um, yes, uh, I could see that we're at the top of a rise. That's one of the reasons why my wife is cashing in her pension before next year, because uh, well, why hold on to money? Um, and you think the stocks and shares as being machinery in factories and things. But remember, the factory stands on a piece of land. So lots of stocks and shares, whether they're chemicals, industrials, uh, certainly mining, it isn't just the operation that goes on, it's also investment in land and natural resources. And if that's going to go down next year or early part of the following year, 2019, then it's far better to get out of those things now and get into uh, fixed interest or uh, spend the money.
0: Or Bitcoin. uh, (laughs) That's
1: exactly exactly what we're doing. We're buying a new house.
0: Right. Okay, well... uh... Dave Wetzel, for a long time you've been a councillor for many decades and as the Mayor of London, Ken Livingstone's right-hand man during the planning of the Crossrail Tunnel. Can you uh, give us some of the background to that incredible development? Because I know plenty of people said, look, that's not going to be built for a decade, but uh, it got up and running and uh, how's it uh, panning out a couple of years since I've spoken to you about this?
1: What we're talking about is Crossrail, now, unfortunately, to be called the Elizabethan line, I hate that title, as if either the first Elizabethan or even the second Elizabethan has got anything for us to uh, learn lessons from. The um, Crossrail has been muted in various guises uh, for decades, and when i was vice chair of transport for london that was the period 2000 to 2008 when ken livingston as you rightly say was mayor of london i was his vice chair of uh, tfl transport for london Uh, we introduced the congestion charge which i say is a land value tax on wheels Um, you pay for the spare scarce road space that you wish to occupy um we uh, were going to government a labor government saying let's build crossrail uh, and the labor government was saying we can't afford it it's just not affordable it can't be done and uh, bob kiley who was the uh, commissioner for transport he came from new york he was the highest paid public servant uh in his day uh, when most, well, when the Prime Minister was getting about 130,000 pounds a year, uh, we were paying Bob 750,000 pounds a year, and he—I can't describe him as a keen georgist, but he clearly understood the effect transport had on land values, and he clearly advocated a small but significant land value tax, not to um, replace other taxes, as I would wish, but simply to uh, pay for public transport. And uh, so we went to government. I I went into the Treasury maybe uh, half a dozen times, arguing that we should have land value tax to pay for Crossrail. But that was far too revolutionary for uh, the dullheads in the Treasury and their political masters in the Labour Party uh, to accept. Uh, And so Bob, with his small team of young Americans, came back and said, right, they don't want any new tax. Let's look at all the existing taxes, and particularly the property taxes. So we looked at... um, the um, misnamed uh, stamp duty land tax, and we saw there was no mileage in that because that's only a transactional tax. It uh, deters people from transacting and um, no, uh, no benefit for us to build Crossrail in that. Uh, and yet the current mayor is asking for stamp duty to uh, be delegated down to his coffers rather than you know, that that is paid in London uh, in, instead of going nationally into the exchequer. They'll never agree to that, I don't think. But uh, it, it's interesting. They don't understand the law of rent. But that's my fault, not theirs, because I haven't taught it to them. The, uh, so Bob his team looked at business rates and they looked at council tax. Council taxes paid for people with homes and business rates is is paid uh, on occupied business premises, not by the landowner, but by the occupier. And um, they suggested, first of all to me, and then we went to the Treasury and suggested it, that we could have a small levy on the bigger businesses. Those of the rateable value over about £50,000 per annum. So you've got to be a pretty big business to be paying that much rates on that valuation. And um, if we had a small levy, we could collect, over a number of years, £4.1 billion. And the cost across rail was £16 billion. So a quarter of the cost of crossrail could be collected from what we described as a supplementary business rate, only falling on the bigger businesses and only falling within the greater London area. Now, crossrail is a huge railway. The main tunnel goes through central London, but it goes out either side. It goes out maybe 30 miles from the centre to Reading and a similar distance um, to the east of London. Reading is to the west of London. It has a branch going to Heathrow Airport. And when it leaves Liverpool Street, it has a branch going to Docklands uh, where all the Canary Wharf and the big uh, financial, legal and accountancy firms are located, and then on to Abbey Wood, and the other part of it goes uh, north of the Thames to Shenfield. And all those businesses outside of the Greater London area, in the catchment area of Crossrail, will all see their land values increasing. And that's a tax-free gift to those landowners. But nevertheless, just having a small levy, I'm talking about perhaps 2p in the rateable value of the pound each year, and only on the more expensive buildings, not including the expensive land, any vacant sites would pay zilch. And not including the value of land outside the GLA area, which will go up, particularly places like... Um, the uh, Heathrow Airport, you know, they'll collect an uh, enormous more rent, uh, and that's a Spanish landowner owns um, the Heathrow Airport. Uh, that'll all benefit, but even just collecting that small amount uh, will uh, raise a quarter of the huge cost across crossrail And it was many years later uh, that I met um, the. Um, a guy called Sam White. Now, he was the political advisor to Alistair Darling. By this time, when the decision was taken, we could build cross Gordon Brown was Prime Minister, and Alistair Darling was the Chancellor. Exchequer. Some person said to me before Blair resigned, the trouble is, if Gordon becomes Prime Minister, who can you have as Chancellor? I said, well... Oh, Obviously, I Alistair die. He said, no, no, you can't have two Scotsmen, one Chancellor and one Prime Minister. That's not right. I said, well, we've had two Englishmen in many, many occasions. I don't see why you can't. But anyway, it happened. And Sam White said to me that the whole concept of the supplementary rate was the game changer. We also did other things. We securitized some of the extra revenue that would be coming in. Um, so that we could get money up front from the banks and we would pay them back once the trains are running from the extra revenue from the fare box which i disagree with i think trains should run free it would put land values up even more but um, if we had a land value tax collecting 98 percent of the land wealth, uh, that would be to the good of the public purse so i'm all in favor of encouraging people to leave their cars use public transport by having a free public transport system nationally.
0: Listeners, check out the podcast for an extended interview with Dave Wetzel. Wouldn't you love to sit around a campfire with him? Maybe I'm just that sort of geek.
1: But so that's the story of uh, Crossrail in terms of finance. Of course, there's many more stories about Crossrail, the uh, cemeteries they dug into and things like that, the problems, the engineering problems they faced, and and the problems of the Soho studios who were complaining about the vibration of the building works affecting the uh, recording of their marvellous pop tunes. When I listen to some of the modern pop, I don't think it's doing very much damage at all. <laughs>
0: Dave Wetzel, though, how has it panned out now that the crossrail has been built? Uh, uh, Everyone's accepting these charges and is it being recognised that uh, by capturing some of this land value uplift due to public transport, due to public infrastructure, that uh, it makes sense?
1: I'll emphasise it's not my first choice. My first choice was a complete land value tax for the country. My second choice was a site value rating or a local land value tax for London itself. The supplementary rate was only my third choice. But the beauty of it was the landowners who were going to pay it knew their land would go up in value much more than the amount they would pay. So they did not squeal.
0: How much of that was discussed with the landowners that you'd only be taking one or two percent of the uplift
1: oh all the time all the time
0: were, were there any like public uh, uh campaigns to actually teach people that or what sort of outreach programs were no undertaken? we didn't
1: need to we we didn't spend a many penny on publicity or advertising we um put out press releases. We discussed regularly Transport for London had regular meetings uh, with all the uh, business community, small businesses, big businesses, etc. The Chamber of Commerce, the uh, CBI, London First, which represented all the biggest firms in London, as well as the Federation for Small Businesses. These were regular, ongoing discussions, uh, not just about Crossrail, but about all the problems they faced in London, getting suitable workers, getting materials in and all the rest of it, roadworks and how they affect business and stuff like that. So we were having regular meetings with businesses and uh, we explained it fully to them. The Conservative Party did not oppose it in Parliament. Indeed, In 2008, when uh, Boris Johnson, the new Tory mayor, sacked me on his first day in office, he carried on with Crossrail and the funding of Crossrail because he could see the benefits of it. George Osborne, the finance minister who now edits a London newspaper, but um, at that time was our Chancellor Exchequer, he in his last budget, put forward the idea that other cities across the nation could adopt the supplementary rate basis to fund infrastructure, not for revenue expenditure, not to pay for school teachers, fire service, police, or anything like that, like they do in China. They sell their leases in China, and they pay revenue expenditure, and they're going to run out of well, they are running out of leases and creating huge problems. Uh, there's almost riots every week in some part of China where local farmers are being pushed off their land in order for the council to sell leases, in order to get revenue to pay for services, which is obviously the totally wrong approach. But they, the Tory government advocated it for cities to be able to use to fund infrastructure. And that is the story today. This government uh, under Theresa May is advocating land value capture.
0: And in Parliament,
1: the Coalition for Economic Justice, which brings together most of the georgia's organizations and individuals into a collective approach, and we meet monthly, the Coalition for Economic Justice, is just about, in December 2nd, to form an all-party parliamentary group for land value capture. And for that, we have to have members of parliament, either members of the Lords or members of the House of Commons, from all the major political parties to form an APPG, which gets registered by the House of Commons itself and we're doing that on December the 2nd. We've got all-party support for it. Doesn't mean doesn't mean the uh, major parties themselves are all signed up to it, but what it means is we've got individual MPs and individual members of the House of Lords who are prepared to sign up to the APPG for land value capture. We're certainly on a roll. We had a general election in April this year, no, beg your pardon, June eighth this year the campaign started in April, and in three of the mani- four of the manifestos, the Green Party, the Labour Party, the Cooperative Party, and the liberal democratic party land value tax those words were mentioned, and even the Conservative Party was looking at land values as being a way to help fund residential care for senior citizens and things of that nature and all the parties are desperately concerned about the housing crisis and you and I and I hope most of your listeners realise there is only one solution to the housing crisis in whatever country and that is to collect the rent of land for public purposes and to stop taxing the building of houses themselves and stop taxing the people that build the houses and stop taxing the entrepreneurs who bring everything together. We don't need to tax entrepreneurs if we're taxing land value. How did I, how did I this is middle. Can
0: you count, suckers? And you, A simple farmer yeah. who has prospered. The town looks to me as friend and counsel. And landlord and banker. Can we proceed? Thank you. I say the future is ours! What's wrong? Nothing. If you can count. <laughs> There's this is middle class privileged elite in most countries You have a pretty good idea of what's going on in the world, but they will not, but they will not talk, but They will not talk. Dave, 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 you've got to explain to us what are supplementary rates? If this is the magic formula, what is it based on?
1: Well, the rating system
0: goes back to
1: Elizabethan times when they started flood clearance in the Norfolk Broads and uh, Lincolnshire uh, and they turned marshland into cultivable land. So what they did... On all the landowners they they charged a a rate, and that paid for the flood clearance for the building of dikes and the building of streams, canals and things to shift the water into the sea and allowed the land uh, to be uh, farmed and um, That was introduced, and it was extended to the towns on buildings only. Uh, And that's been going on, as I say, since Elizabethan times. And everybody accepts the rates. uh, And they've got very good uh, attributes. You can only avoid paying rates or evade paying rates by one means only. And that is to die bankrupt. And... Not many wealthy landowners who own buildings that are paying rates choose that as an option for uh, tax avoidance. Now, Robert Maxwell, when he jumped off his yacht called to Christine, that's exactly what he did. He, He died bankrupt. So any rateable bills that he had in the UK would have been wiped out. But not many people jump off of their yachts. Uh, in order to avoid paying rates. And his motive was more to avoid the disgrace uh, of being seen to have pinched people's pension pots and things like that, the workers in his newspapers and his publishing companies. But it's therefore a very stable form of taxation. It's not best. In fact, it was one of the American economists, Georgist economists, um, who described the property tax as being the best of all taxes and the worst of all taxes. It's the worst because if you improve your building, if you make it bigger or you make it more beautiful and more desirable, the value of the building goes up and you get taxed more. So, and the opposite is true. If you allow your building to become derelict, you pay no tax on it at all. So, in terms of incentives, it's not a good tax at all. But, apart, as we all know, apart the value of the building isn't just the materials in the building, it isn't just the features of the building, it's not just the use the building can be put to, it is also the location of that building. And the element of rates or property tax that falls on the location value of the building is the best of all taxes. And as I've described with the rates, it can't be avoided. We can see your building on Google Maps and all the rest of it. We know it exists. You can't hide it in the Cayman Isles, so you can't avoid paying your rates. So we come along, we collect. It's a very, very stable form of income. Now... The supplementary rate, every commercial building in the UK is rated according to what it can be rented out for. But that is not necessarily a current rent. Uh, It's always a few years behind and um, it's more a theoretical rent, but it's an index. A building twice the size of another building next door to each other and of equal quality materials and equal use will be twice the rateable value. So it's an index of value. And the closer you are to a tube station, the higher your value will be. The farther away you are from the tube station, the lower your value will be. And um, a building in the suburbs will be much less value than a building in a suburban town centre, and the building in a suburban town centre will be much lower value than a building in Knightsbridge, Westminster, or the City of London itself. So there's a parity, an equality about it, that people see there's a fairness. And um, although people bellyache, there's also something else about the rates that doesn't get talked about. There's an inverse relationship between the rates that you pay and the rent that you pay. And that's not all. And most businesses in the UK rent their premises. And by an inverse relationship, what I mean is that a business that wants to occupy a building will look at the total cost of occupation. They don't look at the rent separate to the rates. They combine them. And they know what they can afford. So if they can afford 100 and the rent is 60 and the rates are 50, it becomes 110. And they say to the landlord, sorry, mate, or missus, I can't afford it. And the landlord has to reduce their rent demand to 50 because the incoming tenant can afford 100. If they're going to give 50 to the government, local government, uh, they can only afford to give 50 to the landowner. If the rent goes up to 80, they can then only afford to give 20 to the landowner. And so that is what I call an inverse relationship. Now, we get many, many businesses on the television, the radio, the media, and newspapers saying business rates are too high. We need to drop them. Uh, And governments have even done that on occasion, frozen them for a period of time or whatever, to help business. What they don't realize, they're actually helping landowners. And the biggest evidence was that was the LDDC, the London Development Corporation, Uh, Docklands Development Corporation that I was talking about earlier, Um, they had a 10-year rate freeze. For 10 years, any occupier moving into Docklands paid no rates at all. What do you think happened to land values? The rates not collected by the government went to the landowners. So this inverse relationship exists. And the more higher we can put Rates, the lower rents can be collected. Mm. And now, with the uh, supplementary business rate, it meant that the rates were going higher, and therefore the landlords would, over time, when leases come up for renewal, etc., they would collect less in rent. But they knew the reduction in rent due to the supplementary business rate would be more than offset by the increase in rent because of Crossrail. And I've got proof of that. I've got a friend who owns a building near five-minute walk from Tottenham Court Road Station opposite the um, British Museum. And uh, his property, he bought it for just over a million pounds uh, some years ago, but uh, since Crossrail was announced, and it's now worth over... Two and a half million pounds. And he says most of that is down to Crossrail and his closeness to Tottenham Court Road Station. People want to be close to Crossrail. It opens up enormous opportunities. It isn't just the railway itself, but it's all the links it has. You know, Liverpool Street, all the lines out of Liverpool Street. King's Cross, all the lines out of King's Cross. Um, Bond Street and Oxford Street opens up uh, Heathrow, yeah, you know, people want to get to Heathrow. Going out to Reading, Reading is our Silicon Valley. People want to get there, and so it's national rail links. It has. It's got all the other tube line links. It has. It links into lots and lots of thousands of bus routes. It's all of that that Crossrail offers. It's a change of gear for the city when it opens in two thousand well, either late autumn, winter 2018 or early winter, spring of 2019. When it opens, it's going to make an enormous difference. And as we all know, that difference will be expressed in land values and landowners knew that. So that is what the supplementary rate is. Um, If your building is valued at £50,000 every year, you're going to pay tuppence for every £50,000 of value. And, you know, that is peanuts compared to the increase that you're going to benefit from.
0: Dave Wetzel, thanks so much for that extended insight into the cross-rail tunnel in the UK. So when it comes to the Charter of the Forest, what inspired Robin Hood?
1: Well, you think of Robin Hood and you think of robbing the rich and giving to the poor. Well, I like to tell a story about the Victoria Coach Station, The Victoria coach station is where all our intercity buses come into London and the people who travel by intercity bus tend to be the poorest in the community, they're slower, they make lots of stops and all the rest of it they get involved in traffic jams, much better to fly intercity or to go by car or to go by train, but the poorest tend to go by intercity bus and The bus station itself is operated by Transport for London, the authority I used to be vice chair of. And I discovered that a third of that bus station was owned by Grosvenor Estates. And we paid them rent of £230,000 a year. Now, where do we get the rent from? We didn't get the money by printing pound notes. We're not allowed to do that. So we charge the coach companies, 230000 a year uh, to pay to Grosvenor Estates. They also paid more than that for other things. But for every bus that went in and every coach that went out, they paid us a charge. Where did they get the money from? They got the money from the passengers. So every passenger sitting on a coach collectively were giving Grosvenor Estates two hundred and thirty pounds a year so we're talking about what I would call an absurdity but no, not an absurdity an obscenity the poorest travellers in this country are given Grosvenor estates owned by the richest landowner in the country, the Duke of Westminster 230 thousand a year That cannot,
0: cannot be right. Yes, Dave. Uh, Well, that's perhaps what us uh, tax geeks are all about, is uh, playing the real Robin Hood and using the tax system to charge Grosvenor Estate for the immense value of that station. And instead of them collecting the rents, we, the public, collect the rents.
1: You got it in one. I call that story Hood Robin. We rob the poor to give to the rich.
0: All right, Dave. Well, thanks so much for joining us here on The Renegade Economist. Fantastic discussions, as always.
1: Thank you, Carl.